chapter 7. We are making our way through the book of Daniel. Title today is Pulling Back the Curtain. Uh, So... If you are are joining us and you weren't here last week, we're looking at the second half of Daniel chapter 7, and we kind of did a big intro to it last week, talked a lot about apocalyptic genre, and I encourage you, go back to last week's message if you'd like. You can access it through our website, and that'll help in kind of the beginning of how to understand the section that we're now moving into through the book of Daniel. Um, It's a little bit of an interesting part. If you've not read Daniel, the first six chapters are are mostly narrative, what we call story form. But as we move into chapter 7, we're moving primarily into apocalyptic genre, something that we don't see a whole lot today and is a little bit unusual. And so if you've not read Daniel, if you're somewhat new to Christianity or new to the Bible, uh, this is definitely one of those texts that's more interesting and does take a little bit more thought just to begin to wrap your head because it's something... The type of literature is not what we necessarily use today. In fact, let me read a quote real quick. I read this last week. It it helps us better understand what is apocalyptic genre. Apocalyptic is written for those who feel powerless or helpless, under pressure, marginalized, left out, for those who become the objects of scorn and ridicule for their faith, for those who suffer and cry out, how long? It is for anyone who feels burned out and tired, who wonders if life is passing him by. It is for all who grieve, who do not get out of life what they expect, who are frustrated and angry. In a word, apocalyptic is written for those who are in need of perspective. It's often written uh, by persecuted people um, that are going through great difficulty. And so there's, there's really three primary goals of apocalyptic genre number one perseverance is that we as god's people would know that we can persevere in our faith because of what we have read uh number two is god's judgment we're reminded uh that that god is our judge and that one day he is bringing all things to judgment that evil will come to an end it will not continue forever and number three rule god rules he is on his throne right now nothing is happening without his understanding without his dominion and so we understand that god does rule and to recap last week we primarily looked at there are four beasts that come out of the world and remember Everything is symbolic when we're in apocalyptic genre. The four beasts represent kingdoms. The sea represents the rebelliousness of humanity. And we see that the kingdoms are coming out of the rebelliousness of humanity. And they rage against the rule of God. Um, But then we also see that there is one called the Ancient of Days. And he sits on his throne. And he is in control of all things. And one day he will bring judgment upon these kingdoms and they will pass away. And so that's, that's where we were a lot last week. And this week we're going to start in verse 13 and we're going to read to the end of the chapter. And so I'm going to invite you to stand. Uh, we stand when we read the word of God here. We do so just to remind us this is God's word coming with his full authority and inspiration. Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, in which devoured and broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. 
and about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up before which three of them fell. The horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and, it tramp, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall rise, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and, he, and shall put down the three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole earth shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Let's pray. Father, give wisdom to us today. God, I pray that now, as we expound upon your word, as we look at it, Lord, your spirit would work powerfully. Give us understanding. Help us understand the truth that is here, the truth that communicates that, God, as Christians, saved by grace through Jesus Christ, that we, we can persevere in our faith. God, help us to see the truth that, God, you are a great and mighty and powerful judge, and you will bring all kingdoms of this world to an end. The truth that, God, you rule right now. That you rule, God, and there is nothing that happens without your understanding, without your knowledge. And Lord, we just pray that now as, as we look, grow us in our faith, convict us of any sin, that we would repent and live for you. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. I want to direct you just real quick to verse 15. In verses 15, 16, and 17, and 18, uh, we, we quickly kind of see a little bit of the main point. Uh, verses 15, we see Daniel's alarm. 16, he goes, and an angel begins to interpret for him. In apocalyptic genre, usually always the interpretation comes to us through a divine mediator, such as an angel. And we see in verse 17, four beasts are four kings who come out of the earth. So that's who the beasts are. There's these kings and kingdoms. And then verse 18, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. So that's what we're going to look. We're going to look at this beast, particularly the fourth one, and the emphasis is going to be largely on the fact that the saints of the Most High, that as believers in Christ, we receive the everlasting kingdom. And so we're going to begin by looking at the kingdom and the one who, who uh, not only establishes the kingdom, but receives the kingdom. And we begin in verses 13, 14, looking at the one called the Son of Man. And we see this one like the Son of Man. He comes and he receives an everlasting kingdom. So, so who is this? Well, we know he's divine because he travels in the clouds. We said, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... Only God travels in the clouds. We see in the Old Testament, clouds regularly represent the presence of God. When God dwells with his people, we see a cloud coming upon them. We see a cloud leading them. In the Psalms, we read that God rides in the clouds. And so we know that this is, is, is someone representing God. But then when we come into the New Testament, we gain much greater clarity. We see that this Son of Man is Jesus Christ. For the title Son of Man is used 82 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And do you know who uses it? Jesus. And do you know who he refers to? Himself. He refers to his ministry. He refers to the cross, the suffering, and resurrection that will take place there. And he refers to the time when he will come again and gather his church. So the Son of Man clearly, when we come to the scriptures, refers to Jesus Christ. So what does the term Son of Man mean? It's important that we understand this. This is huge. Jesus uses it. It's said to be his favorite self-designation. 
Um, if you remember, there are uh, two disciples that follow Jesus. Well, there's many, but two particularly named James and John. And one day when they are uh, about to go into Samaria, Samaria is not very hospitable. So James and John, they come to Jesus and they say, hey, should we bring some thunder and lightning on them? And you can just imagine like Jesus going, no, we're, we're not going to do that. that. That's not a good idea, James and John. And so they, they're called the sons of thunder. That, that's who these two brothers are because they embody that which is thunder. I mean, they, they want to bring thunder and lightning on people. And that's a little bit of their character. And so when we come and we go, okay, who is this son of man? He's the one who embodies all that which humanity is intended to be. Martin Luther called him the proper man. And it might help to, to just better understand this if we look back and we understand the first Adam, the first man. In Genesis 1.27, we see that Adam and Eve, they're created in the image of God. In the image of God, they're created. And then in 1.28 of Genesis, we are told that they are given rule and dominion over everything in the earth. And so they live, in a, they live in a garden, which is like the kingdom of God. They dwell as kings. They're told to multiply, meaning have kids who have kids who have kids who have kids who have kids, and fill the entire world that this kingdom, this garden, would grow and expand and fill the entire earth. But yet, we know that that's not what happened, because rather than being obedient to God, we see that Satan comes in, deceives them, and rather than worship God, they say, oh, why worship God when we can become God? And so we see that they become sinful. And because they become sinful, no longer do they rightly image God. They become distorted image bearers. And we see that all throughout the Bible. Every single person that comes is now characterized by sin. Everyone that comes from Adam, from the first man, is characterized by sin. So you, I, all of us who are born into this world, we're born sinful because Adam, the first man, represents us. He sinned, therefore we have all been born into this sin. Even great figures like David we see in the Bible. He's called a man after God's own heart. And yet what do we see? He kills a man, takes his wife for his own. So everyone, as we're making our way through the Bible, is falling prey to sin until we come into the Gospels and we meet a different man. We meet one called the Son of Man, born of the Holy Spirit, and he is called the last Adam. So the first Adam plunges all of humanity into uh, sin. The second Adam is going to do something different. And we see that Jesus will go out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and then after that, he will be tempted by Satan. So Satan who came to Adam and Eve in the garden, now remember the garden, everything is perfect. There is one form of temptation, one tree, right? Now, Jesus is in a wilderness for 40 days, has not eaten. Everything is a temptation at this moment, right? Because there is no comfort, there is no luxury. And so Satan comes to him, and the strange thing happens. Jesus goes all nine rounds with him, and we see that Jesus stands firm upon the word of God. And in Matthew 4:11, it's Satan who leaves. This is different. 39 books in the Bible, we see man sins, man sins, man sins, man sins, man sins, man sins, man sins. Come into the Gospels, one man resists sin. He stands firm upon the word of God. This is the true man. And then what right after Satan flees from him, we see this son of man, he begins healing. And he begins casting out demons. He begins reversing the effects of sin. It's like he's undoing sinful creation and beginning to restore it. And then we see he goes and preaches. And what does he preach about? He preaches about the kingdom, what life looks like in the kingdom. How do you receive the kingdom? He's plundering the kingdom of this world. He's plundering the kingdom of Satan. And he's beginning to see people come and place their faith in him and bring them into the kingdom of God. The first Adam represents all of sinful humanity. The second Adam is restoring humanity back into the proper image of God. And so he represents all of redeemed humanity. This is the Son of Man we're looking at here in Daniel, who's looking forward to when Jesus comes in the Gospels. And so why does the Son of Man, why is it that Jesus will receive the kingdom? 
Because he's the second Adam. He's the last Adam. Unlike the first Adam that sinned, this one is sinless. He does not forfeit the kingdom. He does not forfeit the rule and dominion like Adam did, but rather he obediently follows God. He goes to the cross where he dies, and then he's raised again. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 and 11, what we see is that Jesus, he's humbled himself. He's been obedient to all that God has called him to do. And as he raises from uh, the grave, this is what we read. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that, <coughs> that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the Son of Man. This is the one who rises and receives the kingdom because he has perfectly obeyed the Father, unlike any of us have done, unlike anyone prior to him has done. So when does he do it? When does he receive this kingdom? Well, notice, look back at verse 13. What is the direction that he's going? He's going towards the Ancient of Days. So when is it that Jesus goes towards the Ancient of Days? It's certainly at his resurrection and ascension, right? This is when the kingdom has been established. This is when Jesus takes his rightful place on the throne next to the Father. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, there's a couple verses up on the screen. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. When did he do that? When did he triumph over them? At the cross and resurrection. Matthew 28, 18, after Jesus is raised from the dead, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He is king at that moment. Now, Ephesians 1, 20 to 22 says it pretty clearly that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. This is what the Father was doing. When he worked in Christ, raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So when is that a reality? It's at the cross. It's at the death and resurrection of Christ. So what is Christ doing right now? He's at the right hand of the Father with all rule and authority and power and dominion, and he sits above everything. So the kingdom of God has been established as of now in this earth through the death and resurrection of Jesus. It is here, and it is coming, and it's consummation when Jesus returns. And that's what we have here in our text. The beginning of our text, we have the establishment of the kingdom, the founding of the kingdom, which only takes place through the Son of Man. Now, at the end of the text, we have the saints receiving the kingdom. So we have the, the first coming of Christ, the establishment of the kingdom. We have the second coming of Christ, where the full consummation of it will come about, and the saints receive the kingdom. And so that's what we're going to look at real quick. We're going to look at the end of our text over in verse 27. And we see that the saints inherit and they receive the everlasting kingdom. Now, who are the saints? Well, throughout Scripture, especially in the New Testament, we see saints is regularly referred to as believers, as Christians, as those who have trusted in the Son of Man, the last Adam, not the first, the last Adam, the true Son of Man, the one who rightly images God. Remember, the first, the first Adam represents all of sinful humanity. He became sinful, therefore all humanity becomes sinful. But now this second Adam has come, this last Adam, and he is sinless, he is holy, and therefore all who believe in him are counted holy, and therefore brought into the kingdom of God. One thing we see in God's word is that this last Adam, he represents us, meaning what's true for him is true for us. So let me explain. Um, and this is in your, in your bulletin. Jesus is the son, and so in Galatians 4.4, 4, by our faith in Jesus, we become sons. Jesus rose from the grave, and in 1 Corinthians 15, we read, because of our faith in Christ, we too will rise. Jesus has the Spirit. In Romans 8 9, we see because of our faith in Christ, we have the Spirit. We see Jesus suffered, and in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, we're told that in Christ, we also suffer, and we do that for the purpose of showing the gospel in this world. 
Jesus sits at the right hand, and therefore in Revelation 3.21, we see that because of our faith in Christ, what? We sit at the right hand. What's true of Jesus becomes true of those who have faith in Jesus. And so I have a chart, because we're, we're in apocalyptic genre, right? We have to have charts, right? You guys know that. But we have good charts. This, this is a good chart. Simply comparing what we see of the Son of Man in verses 13 and 14, and in verse 27, what's true of the saints of the Most High. We see that Jesus receives a kingdom, dominion, glory. What do the saints receive? A kingdom, dominion, and greatness. We see that all the people will serve the Son, and we see of the saints in verse 27, all saints serve the Most High, which that's the purpose. The way we worship the Most High, the Father, is through the Son. And so by worshiping the Son, we're worshiping the Father. The Son receives an everlasting kingdom. The saints receive an everlasting kingdom. What's true for the Son of Man is true for all who have placed their faith in Him. Isn't that good news? Like this, we're talking about, really, the destiny that we have of living forever in the kingdom of God. Now, remember, last week we looked at the Ancient of Days. And remember the Ancient of Days, how he's described. He sits on a fiery throne with fiery wheels, and a river of fire comes out of this throne. So the idea, he's completely and absolutely holy. And if anything unholy comes into his presence, what's going to happen? It will be burned and destroyed. And yet we're told now, that we're the saints of the Most High, that we come into His presence, that we dwell with Him, that we live with Him. So because of our faith in Christ, we are made like Christ. So now when God sees us, we have His righteousness on us, and we're able to now dwell in the presence of God forever. And when we come into like Revelation 21 and 22, and we begin reading about what this kingdom looks like, we are told that there's no need for a son. It's not that there's not a son. Whether there is or not, I guess we'll find out. But there's no need for a son because the brilliant glory of God will give us all the light that we need. We're also told there will be no sea because, uh, remember, the sea represents rebelliousness of humanity. And so in this new heavens and new earth, in the kingdom of God, there will be absolutely no rebellion. Now, there'll probably still be an ocean, but there will be no rebellion. Now, think about this. This is what's being communicated here. In the kingdom of God, which all the saints possess because of faith in Christ, we're destined to live with God where there will be no pain, no guilt, no shame, no evil, no wickedness. In fact, we're told in Revelation 21 and 22, the gates will never close. You want to know why the gates don't need to close? There's no enemy. There's no opposition. Can you think about that? Imagine going through a day without any sin. You do not struggle at all with any temptation, with any lust. You're not impatient. You're not even struggling with patience. Just imagine that one. Imagine you are surrounded with people all who love you and you love them. There's no animosity. There's no jealousy. Jealousness. Jealousness. There's no bitterness. There's no gossip. There's no slander. There's perfect love, perfect peace, perfect joy. Everyone is operating at the fullest capacity of their joy in Christ. That is the kingdom of God. That is the description of what God is bringing us into, that we would dwell with him forever. So when do the saints receive this kingdom? At Jesus' second coming. This is, this is our future. This is what we wait for. This is what Daniel, he has this vision of the kingdom is established through the Son of Man, and, and we receive it because of our faith in Him. This is our hope. We were guaranteed to live in a mighty fortress of God, that we would dwell in the indestructible kingdom of God, full of glory and goodness and joy. Isn't that exciting? Like, can you just imagine what a day like that would be? I mean, every day, do we not struggle with patience, with anger, with, with so many things? And there we'll be perfected so that we truly will be like Christ in every way, made into his image without ever struggling with sin, perfectly enjoying not only one another, but the very glory of God for all of eternity. That is what we were created for. But because of sin separated from, but the new Son of Man, He comes and redeems us that we once again would dwell in God's presence. But this time, 
never again to be separated because sin would be completely and absolutely destroyed. So that's what we have. We have the first coming of Christ, the establishment of the kingdom, the second coming of Christ, the consummation of his kingdom, where the saints will then receive uh, the kingdom. And then we have this time in between, which is what the verses are, in between, when we start reading about this beast with, four, with, uh, with ten horns. And so that's what we're going to look at now. So if you look at verse 23, we're going to start figuring out who is this fourth beast with ten horns. Verse 23 says this fourth beast is a fourth kingdom here on earth. Now, if you remember, last week we looked at all four kingdoms, and most likely, initially, they were probably to be seen as Babylon, and then the Medes and the Persians, Greece, and then Rome. But again, we don't need to be too firm on that because the number four also just represents wholeness. So we're just seeing a, a picture of what all the kingdoms in the world actually look like. But it looks like there will be this fourth one, which appears to be a culmination of the previous three kingdoms. The, the first three kingdoms, Daniel's able to describe. They look like these certain beasts, but when it comes to this fourth beast, it's terrifying. It's hideous. There's no real description. But we do see that there's ten horns, and that there's a little horn that arises. And verse 24 says, these ten horns are ten kings that come from the kingdom. Now, what do horns mean? Well, horns in apocalyptic literature represent power and strength. And the number ten represents completion and perfection. And so what we have here is not a list of kings that we're supposed to try to figure out, well, which king is which. Because if you have ten commentators, guess how many choices you have? Like a hundred. Like there's a lot of confusion on this. Now there, there's probably some good thoughts on there, but when we try to start naming precision, we're missing the point because apocalyptic genre is meant to reveal, it's meant to uh, pull the curtains back so we see the spiritual reality behind the physical reality. So these numbers are representing a spiritual reality more than just a physical name that we're trying to associate with it. But what the point is, is that there's going to be a perfect number of rulers and powers that come out of this kingdom. And then, and then there's going to be another one. So after this perfect number, there's going to be this final horn, this little horn that emerges. That will be the final display of this beast's power. And so what do these horns do? Well, most likely, this little horn will do the very same thing that the other horns have done, but probably with greater intensification and possibly more global impact. But look at verse 25. We see, describing the little horn, he shall speak words against the Most High. He will blaspheme God. And notice how it refers to him, the Most High. We're not talking about a God, some God. This is the God, the one who rules supreme over all of creation and then we have, he will wear out the saints of the Most High, which the word wear out means he will consume them. We see that this horn will try to change times and the law. And lastly, in verse 25, we see that his time is limited. He will rule for times, a, a time, times, and half a time. There's great discussion on what all that means, but we see a time, times, so now plural, and then it seems like we're going to go more, and then it's cut off. So whatever was happening, it does not continue, but it's cut off. And so the big thing to take away, though, is it's limited, right? So whatever time this refers to, it's limited. However powerful this beast is, he's finite because his rule will not last forever, but it will be cut off. So the fourth beast with ten horns and then a little horn is going to oppose the rule of God and also the people of God. That's what this horn and this beast is going to do. So let's remember Daniel. He's been in exile for about 50 years up to this point. And he knows that exile is supposed to last about 70 years. And so possibly, potentially, what he's thinking is, God, when, when, when Babylon, in 70 years, are you going to release us from Babylon? Is that when you're going to bring back your kingdom? Is that when your rule will be made known here on earth? Is that when your kingdom will once again rise to its glory? Is that what we're looking for? And then the answer is, oh, Daniel, don't worry. The kingdom's coming. The Son of Man will establish it. The saints are guaranteed to inherit it. But 
that will come after kingdom, after kingdom, after kingdom, after kingdom of, of opposition also. So we're told it's coming, and Daniel's told it's not coming yet. So I want you to take everything that we have right there. I just want you to, to mentally hold on to that. Turn in your Bibles over to Revelation 13. Revelation 13, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. The reason we're going to look over here is because John, uh, one of the apostles of Jesus, also writes apocalyptic literature. And he's going to write about a beast. And what you're going to see, and I'm going to go ahead and give it to you in the beginning, this beast is the fourth beast in Daniel because it's the culmination of the previous three beasts. And you'll see that as we describe it here. But Revelation chapter 13 1 through 7. I won't make you stand again unless if you really want to. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Those are the th first three beasts. Go back and read Daniel chapter 7, verses 2 through 8. That's the description of the first three beasts. There's elements of those beasts now in this fourth beast. And to it, the dragon, the dragon represents Satan, which is clearly shown in chapter 12, gave his power and his throne and his great authority. So the dragon gives all authority to this beast. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given the authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Again, finite period of time. And it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given over it, every tribe and people and language and nation. The first thing, this is the culmination of the first three beasts. This is the fourth beast that we have. And again, we have to have charts, so I have a chart for you. Uh, so it's up on the screen. And again, I just want you to see the comparison between Daniel 7 and Revelation 13. Both beasts have ten horns. The one in Daniel 7 is told to devour the whole earth. Now, interesting, in Revelation, we see that all earth will worship the beast. So I think there's a connection being made here. We see that it speaks against the Most High. Revelation 13, it speaks against God, attacks the saints, and authority is set for a set period of time for both of these beasts. Pay particular attention, the whole world will worship this beast. And through the worshiping of the beast, the dragon is worshipped. And this worshiping, so, and the beast is going to persecute Christians and blaspheme God. We're, if we were continue to look on at chapter the rest of 13, we would see this unholy trinity that takes place, the dragon representing uh, a Satan. The first beast representing the counterfeit Christ. This second beast that comes, starting in verse 11, the counterfeit spirit. All working for what? The purpose of drawing worship away from God and Jesus to anything else. To anything else. So here in the book of Revelation, the beast at least initially, is going to represent Rome. We always have to realize when we're in the Bible, it's going to immediately apply to the initial readers, the initial people who would have had this. And then it's also going to apply, and especially in apocalyptic genre, it's going to apply to future generations and possibly be escalating in its fulfillment. And so it initially represents Rome, but surely we're not meant to limit it to the first century for this beast we see is active from the coming of Christ. It's, it's there when John's people are wrestling with this and we see at the end of Revelation that it will survive all the way until Christ comes at his second coming where he will destroy the beast and throw it in the lake of fire. So that 42 months surely is represented between the two times. Christ's first, second, first coming and Christ's second coming, a time of persecution, but it will be cut short. The beast represents kingdoms and powers of the world that's going to vie for our worship rather than give it to Jesus. 
and hear this, it will either try to lure Christians away, it will try to kill Christians, or it will discourage Christian, or discourage people from ever becoming Christians. And I just want you to think, this is what we see all throughout the Bible. All throughout the Bible, God's people have been oppressed, have been opposed by the world. Let's just start. In the garden, what do we have? God's people in God's kingdom. Satan comes, lure them away to what? Worship something else. That's the whole goal, and the plan has never changed. It's always about drawing worship away from God to something else. Cain comes, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. Why? His sacrifice isn't accepted. Oh, well, then I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll kill my brother. I'm the one who determines if my sacrifice is accepted. Cain kills his brother Abel. All of a sudden, within a few chapters, we see that the flood comes, and the flood comes from God because all of humanity has rejected God. All of humanity is worshiping something other than God. Therefore, God cleanses the world, but we see that the cleansing of the world doesn't cleanse our hearts, right? For that, we need the Son of Man. And we see proof of that when we get to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 10 and 11. All of humanity is gathered for the purpose of rebelling against the rule of God and the worship of man. We see Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities, just full of description of what the kingdom of the world looks like, lustfully pursuing anything that we want other than God. In fact, when God's messengers come into the city, what do they want to do? They want to attack, oppose, and kill them. When we go into Egypt, we see Pharaoh in all of Egypt, which represents the world. What does it do? It tries to kill every uh, Every male child born of Israel, it oppresses the people of God, tries to wipe out the people of God. When we come into Babylon, we see that Babylon destroys uh, God's people, takes them into exile, and then what does it do? Daniel chapter 3, we were there a couple weeks ago. They set up an idol, and they say, if you don't worship our idol, we will kill you. We'll throw you into the fiery furnace. Here is opposition directly against the people of God saying, look, if you want to survive compromise, don't worship God. Don't worship God. Worship this statue, worship anything else. Bow and you will have life. Do not worship God. That is the message of the world. And we can track that on through. We have Greece with Antiochus Epiphanes who comes, oppresses the people of God, sets up pagan altars in the temple of God. Regularly oppressing the people of God. Rome, when it comes, it is where Christians experience the first state-sponsored persecution. For one, there's emperor worship, which the Christians rebelled against and were persecuted for. Nero burned much of Rome so that he could make more room for building his projects, and then he blames Christians for it, and they're persecuted. In Rome, Christians were turned into human torches as the means of lighting their streets at night. In the Roman Colosseum, Christians were regularly fed to the wild animals. And if we fast forward through time, do we not still see that the world greatly opposes the people of God? I mean, nothing has changed. We see Hitler hated Christians and Jews and had no problem placing them in ovens. We see Stalin with the Soviet Union, Kim Jong-un in North Korea. Sarah Ivel, in her commentary, she said this, One look at the persecuted church around the world today will display how many Romes Satan is working through to persecute the people of God. We have to see it. This is what we're looking at. There's a mass persecution through the governments, through the world powers against God's people. I, I butcher this name almost every time I say it, but... Eritrea is a country in northeast Africa. It currently ranks 10th in the most persecuted places for Christians. The government is purposely trying to wipe out evangelicalism. As of 2012, there was at least 2,000 Eritreans who were imprisoned for their faith. Some are put in underground cells without proper nutrition. They receive no medical attention. Many are left to die. Some are placed in metal shipping containers where it is extremely hot and they will die, or extremely cold and they will die. This is this beast that we see. It's risen and lasts all throughout the in between the comings of Christ. This persecution and opposition against the people of God. And we must not think only in violent terms because if we do so, then we'll think something strange about us in America. But we must understand that Satan will do anything he can to lure us away. And here in America, do we not hear the sweet siren call of idolatry? 
want you to think about what happens here. Are we not constantly bombarded with messages from the world that communicate we need something other than Jesus? I mean, every radio station, every TV commercial, every TV show, it's on the internet, it's the magazines at the grocery store line. Um, we're bombarded on our smartphones, things that you need, things that will satisfy you, things that you need more than Christ. The idea of all these messages is that you are God, you should have this, you should pursue whatever you want, and if anyone stands in your way, you should get rid of them, you should oppose them, because you simply deserve it. That's the message of the world, especially here in America. You want evidence? It doesn't look, take hard, or it doesn't take much uh, to, to draw that up. Look at the last election. Now, we're not going to get if you wanted Trump or Clinton, because that's not really the point. But what was the message of largely the church in America? Where was their hope at the time of the election? What was being communicated on Facebook and every other social media? They're trusting more in a president and who will sit in a man-made oval office rather than the son of man who has saved them and that he is their hope. So much of the world and the church was trusting more in and a man other than the true son of man. Look at our desires for possessions. I just want you to think right now. There are some of you who are here, and for the last week or month or maybe longer, there's something in your head, and you can't keep it out. And you're drooling over it. You're lusting over it, saying, man, if only I had this. If only I bought this. Maybe it's a car. Maybe it's a house. Maybe it's some new electronic thing. Maybe whatever you're into, whatever hobby you're into. And when you wake up in the morning, you're thinking, man, if I could have that. Before you go to bed at night, like, man, I really want that. You're thinking, how do I get more money so I can buy this? And all of your thoughts and devotion is going to whatever possession it is that you are fixated upon. Because where we are in America, we need so much to be happy. There's the message of sex. We know as Christians that God has designed sex to be within the confines of marriage for the purpose of his glory and the, the union between two people. But really, I want it now, and I don't want to wait. And because I should have what I want, I will go ahead and pursue it despite what God's word says. Popularity, whether it's in elementary school, middle school, high school, or college, and, and even beyond, we struggle with how do I fit in? What do I need to do to fit in? I will do whatever it takes. If I have to compromise in my beliefs, that is fine as long as that puts me in the in crowd because these relationships are so much more important than the one true relationship. Now, we don't say it that way, do we? Because we know how to speak good theology to ourselves, but functionally, <clears throat> how do we operate? I will compromise every single day of the week for the purpose of having another friend because why? Because I want friends, because I want to be made much of, because I want to be accepted, because I should be accepted. Maybe it's science. Uh, Robert Bodie's not in here. He's a uh, professor over at St. Martin's, and, and he struggles in this. Well, doesn't struggle. He's, he's one of probably growing scientists. I think there's a growing movement right now in Christianity of more uh, good scientists that are upholding the word of God. But what's the message of science largely in America Oh, Christianity is foolish. How dare you believe in God? We don't need a God to explain things. Why? Because we can explain everything. We don't need a God. We are God. If we can taste it, smell it, touch it, all those, use our senses, then we can determine everything we need to know. Now, maybe it's this. Maybe it's simply you want an easy, quaint, quiet life. I mean, you're just like, I just want to, smooth ride. I don't want any bumps. I don't bring up anything to anyone. I'm not going to oppose anyone. I'm not going to make any waves at work or at home. I mean, whatever my wife does, whatever my spouse does, I'm just cruising because, man, I don't, I just simply want to get through. If someone asks me if I'm Christian, sure, I might tell them, but I'm not going to go out and tell anyone because who am I to tell someone how they're supposed to live? I just want to slide back and we make a God out of ourself and our comfort and we just say I just, I just want to get through I just want a quiet peaceful day but let me give one more think about the parents today in society they will kill themselves taking their kids to every single sporting event 365 days a year they will spend countless hours driving or flying and pay enormous amount of money for their kid to hold a ball. And during that time, many of these 
who profess to be Christians will say, look, we just won't be in church for the next X months because, well, Jimmy's got a game. Jimmy's got to be here. We got to take Jimmy here. We just, church is on hold. In fact, we're a little too busy for Bible time, too, at home. So we don't really do much of that because Jimmy's got practice. And we got to get Jimmy there and we got to take Jimmy here. There's no Jimmy's here, are there? I don't think. Oh, wait, we do have a Jimmy. <laughs> I was trying to be real subtle. <laughs> we, do, man, we, we got a Carl here. Go with the name Carl. That's really kind of funny. You wonder if I was thinking something, you know, during the pudding. No, I'm just kidding. I love you, James. Uh, But you think about it, like, does that not sound like idolatry? Is that not the message of America? Is that not what the fourth beast is doing? Look, Satan is a prowling lion looking for people to devour. But get this, he doesn't have to kill us. In fact, I would argue it is more effective for him not to kill us and simply make us apathetic to our faith because that certainly will push more people away from Christianity than anything else. People who are willing to die for their faith, we see all throughout the Bible, when that happens, the church explodes. The, the church is sown with the, with the blood of the martyrs throughout history. But when you put apathy, that'll turn people away from church. I don't want something like that. That has no, uh, no appeal to me at all. So I would argue largely what is happening here in America is much more effective than what Satan does in other places where he kills Christians. Because now America, who used to be the number one sending nation, now we're, qu- we're quickly becoming the number one receiving nation of missionaries. You know that, don't you? People are sending their Christians here, missionaries, to give us the gospel. Because they look at us and they say, man, they don't have the gospel. Not if they live like that. So what's the result? What is the result of this beast and all that it does? Look back at Daniel chapter 7, verse 26. The court will come into judgment. And the beast and its horns will be consumed and destroyed. This beast will be destroyed in all of its horns. Revelation 19, we read that Jesus comes on a horse and a sword comes from his mouth. What does that mean? It means with words he will overcome, kill, and destroy the beast and all those who align with him, the armies of this world. Again, don't think physical. Think this is the spiritual reality behind all that is happening. And so all of these kingdoms, everything that is representing the opposition of God and his rule and opposing those who would worship him will be destroyed one day by the very rule of God. Now listen, I am not saying, do not walk out of here thinking, Man, Nick thinks sports are bad. My kid can't even be in sports. James and I, we have a kid on the same team. Right? See, this is good. I'm affirming you now. We're friends. We got to, you know, if you know my kids, you know they're ballers. Like, they love to ball. And they don't care how big you are. Like, they'll, they'll dribble. They'll do whatever it is they do. Like, we love sports. We got two more basketball games today. I love stuff. I love possessions. I have an iPad. I like my iPad. It's really fun. I like music. Those are all good things, right? So don't hear everything in the world is bad, but hear this. These good, wonderful blessings in this world, sin wants to pervert every single one of them. It wants to pervert every single, and if it can do that, these blessings that we have become like millstones tied around our neck. When we jump into the ocean, what happens? They drag us down, and they will bring us into destruction. That is what Satan wants to do with all the things we have, with all of your thoughts, with all of your desires. Many of us have such good desires, but Satan wants to pervert them so that we use them for our glory and our kingdom rather than God's glory and his kingdom. So real quick, uh, how do we know this is true? How do we know God actually wins? Like, that's a good question, right? Like, how do we know, like, what we just read here is actually going to happen? How does Daniel go, okay, I can persevere? I mean, how does he know? Well, I would argue from Daniel 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, the context that he's given us. Because what we see through those chapters, God is the one who's given the dreams and the interpretations. 
God is the one who has saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. God is the one who brought Daniel out of the lion's den. God is the one who even brought Jerusalem and all of its people into the hands of Babylon in the beginning. All throughout Daniel, we see there is a God who rules over all things, even over all evil powers. So I think that would be my first answer. Well, clearly the context is leading Daniel to understand that my God truly does rule. And so in the midst of chaos, when it doesn't look like he does, I can stand firm and I can continue to trust in God. But I would say where we stand in history, we stand at even a much better place. Because we stand at a position we know exactly who the Son of Man is. From God's word, we clearly see it's the Son, of, it's Jesus Christ who has come, he has lived, he has died, and he rose from the grave, overcoming sin, death, and Satan. And so we clearly know that God has established his kingdom through Jesus, and if he sent him to die and rise again, we can rest assured he will come again to bring his people into the fulfillment of his kingdom. Three other points, but I'm just going to put them up on the blog this week for you, and it's, uh, it's how do we respond to this, and I'll just give them to you quick. Number one, we persevere. In fact, if we kept re reading in Revelation chapter 13, verses 8 and 9, you know what the message is, or 9 and 10, 8 and 9, one of those? It's persevere. Persevere. Our God rules. So that would be my first. Second is praise. We praise our God who's given his son, Jesus Christ. We are not left to the beasts of this earth, but God has rescued us through his son. It'd be praise. And lastly, it'd be proclaim. And we know, we know the future. We know what is going to happen. So let us proclaim the message of God in this world. And I'll put those up. Uh, if you want, you can see those on our website. Uh, probably by Tuesday. I'm going to pray, and then the men will come forward, and we're going to take uh, communion, and then we'll go straight into the rest of what we have. Our Father, I thank you for your love and for your grace. I thank you that you have sent your Son, Jesus, the Son of Man. Lord, we praise you. Lord, we praise you. You are God. You are, ho you are holy, and you are righteous. I thank you how you save us from the finite, temporal pleasures of this world. That you would give us the true, eternal, lasting pleasure and joy that is only found in your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that if there is anyone here who has not trusted in you, that they will trust in you today. I pray if there is anyone here, any Christian who is here, where they can see that they have been trusting more in certain idols, more in, in things and possessions and stuff, rather than you, that you'd bring that to conviction in their heart today. They would confess that to you. Lord, help us to be a people who persevere, knowing that your kingdom is here and it is coming in its fullness. God, we praise you in your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen. Go ahead and ask them.